This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Card carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy, be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Warden Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome sports fans, welcome statistics fans, and welcome business fans here to Wharton Moneyville, here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. This is Eric Bradlow, and I'm hosting this morning with my friends Shane Jensen, Professor of Statistics, and Adi Weiner, Professor of Statistics, some combination of myself, Shane, Adi, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, and replayed throughout the week. It's my favorite two hours of the week. All three of my favorite topics collide into one two-hour, if you'd like, look through the world of sports through the lens of us statisticians. And so, how are you guys doing this morning? Excellent. How's it going with you? Excellent. It's going great. As a matter of fact, we can also have people join in. This is obviously a call-in show. If you want to join the conversation, you can call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email our producer Matt Batts at businessradio at siriusxm dot com. So, guys, obviously, whenever I'm sitting in this chair instead of Cade, obviously, I, I come with a big long list of stuff that caught my eye in sports. You come with that list regardless of where yeah. you sit. Well, Eric. that's true. That is true. But <laughs> I not- kind of assume you make that list every day. You just happen to have a kind of an audience to to give it You're to, right at, uh, like on Wednesday <laughs> I, specifically. I used, I used suggesting that like dinner conversation at my house is what I what caught my eye in sports when yeah, I'm talking. I mean, that, kinda that, that's, that's kind of how a lot of different conversation in my house goes. It just kind of falls on deaf ears. Well, but, yeah. that's true. And of course, we now have millions of people listening to us here at Wharton Moneyball and Absolutely. Sirius XM millions 132. And millions. So I wanted to talk about the first topic, lots of interesting topics. But, and thanks to Zach Drapkin for pointing this out to us as well this morning. Um, we have a situation that I maybe I think someone said it happened once before, but I never remember this happening. Where we have two teams, the Patriots are playing the Jets this week, I believe. At home or who's at home? I think it doesn't matter. But it doesn't matter. I don't <laughs> for, know. For purposes of this discussion, I don't know. It's and in Dallas, the <laughs> and Dallas is playing the uh, Dolphins this week, and that's in Dallas. I'm pretty I know sure. that game yeah. is in right. Dallas. Yep. And both of these teams, the Pats are at home. Thank you, Matt. Mm-hmm. Are both of these teams are over 21 point favorites? Yeah. Wow. Now. I've never seen anything like that. So my it's question happened, is, it, I know it happened once before, I think, where two teams have been Well, above- no, I, I mean, the, the incident I'm thinking of is back in 2007, the Pats were favored by more than 20 points two games in a row, which is not the same as right. two games in one week. Interestingly enough, though, the two teams they were favored over by 20 points Didn't back cover. in 2007, Jets and Dolphins. All right. Oh, <laughs> there you go. I, That's such such. But, a, but let me just—can I put a context in this movie? This Time is a flat me. circle. But, sure. uh, so just to give you guys a sense of what this means, uh, the typical um, standard deviation in the point spread That's what I was ask is about, about yeah. thirteen points. Okay. It all depends on how you model it. Between thirteen and. But let's be clear. When you say the standard deviation in the spreads, this yeah. is what I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. to our listeners here. 
You're talking about about the difference in performance. The difference in performance. Let me just be clear to everybody. That's not saying if we were trying to assess how good the Patriots were or how many points they might score, the standard error is plus or minus 13. No. This is on the difference in performance of two teams. So what this is is that you basically take all the differences, the score differentials for every game, and try to forecast that score differential with a power score for each team and a home field advantage. That is... The, st- the, the RMSE is the technical word for it, to be specific. Is, Residual which is a, mean squared error. Which is the, the forecast standard deviation. The, so the forecast standard deviation is about 13, 13 and a half. It all depends on how you model what season, what period of time you're looking at. So, so what, then, so then do, do us a, this is what I want to talk about. Yeah. Give us a translation here. If the Patriots are 23-point favorites, which they roughly are, 22, right. 23, give us our sense of what's the probability, therefore, of winning that someone would assign to this. Well, uh, basically you have a... Uh, you have almost a two standard deviation, not quite. It's more like 1.7 or so standard deviation gap, forecast standard deviation gap in the in the two teams. Well, wait, no, I, I mean you're. I, I thought you were talking about the spread, the, the standard deviation in actual point differentials of games. No, no, not no, no, in no. spreads. No, actually, exactly. In Vegas so, spreads. So not in Vegas spreads. I'm talking about. So in other in other words, there's Vegas because because I mean Vegas spreads. I would assume were, would be kind of square, like truncated, or at least like oh yeah, more, yeah. You know, like like have a compressed. lower standard deviation, more right. compressed no, so I'm not, than I'm, actual I'm, point differential. Right. So basically, what you, what you're saying is is that th- that's the expected value. So the expected value is the Patriots are going to be 23 points ahead of the Jets. So if you think about the differential, that's I, a random I variable. Assume, and I would assume that 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 20 point spreads is more than two. Like is, is oh, a it's larger number of standard no, 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 deviations no, 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 in terms of a point spread, in terms of an expected oh, yeah, differential. But what we're trying to figure out is what is the chances that the Jets overcome their difference. Right. And land ahead of the... Just let me give you a little bit of data. Thanks to Matt for this. is very interesting. So NFL teams, this is what I talk to you guys about. NFL teams when favored by over two touchdowns, just two touchdowns. The Patriots have won all 19 of the games they've played, but are 13 and six against the spread. The other NFL teams are 97 and five. So just to give you an idea, let's mm-hmm. just add it up. That's 116 and 5. So if we were just brute force That's empiricists, right. yeah. they would be winning about 95% of the games. But against the spread, there's a losing record. Well, so the, so against the, the spread so gives the other team the 23 points, no, and no, it I should understand. be roughly 50-50. And it is roughly, yeah. but it's 45 wins, mm-hmm. 54 losses, okay. and three ties. So right. slightly below 50%. So this gets back to the reason I wanted to bring this up was about a problem I love talking about, I know you guys do, which is what I call calibration, which is we're not trying to calibrate how good two average teams are. We're trying to calibrate a team in the far right tail and the far left tail. And now we're doing something also hard, which is we're trying to say what's the difference between a far right and a far left going to be? And that, to me... Like, the fact that it's as calibrated as this, like, even close to 50% suggests yeah. to me, not bad. And, not bad. And, 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 and it's hard, too, with these, like, kind of really extreme point differentials because it's it, it sort of you, – you, you are also kind of, you know, maybe not directly, but implicitly mar- modeling kind of like how, like, end games and stuff like that work in football. Because, right. I mean, you, you know, the, the, thing, it, the thing that cautions you against Great a big point, point spread right. is not so much that you – like I mean, if if New England was up by you know by that amount at half time, you wouldn't be particularly surprised. But then you would kind of expect that. But let me, most teams, at least, maybe not New England specifically, but most teams would take their foot off the gas, or or or, or you know you wouldn't necessarily expect them to keep adding which on is in why, that same just way. Just so you know, 
by the way, which is why lots yeah. of the sharp money bettors, if you'd like, don't bet on the final score. They'll bet on some intermediate yeah. score because, you know, right. the, maybe Much- the Patriots are up 40 to nothing at the end of the third quarter. And all of a sudden, yeah, all right, we'll let you score 14. Who cares? Yeah. You know, so the final's 40. I mean, again, with New England specifically, they're not going to do, do that. They're but- not. But other teams could. But you, yeah. you were so one of the things is that you guys bring up is the details of the actual sport. But the forecast probability, which I was about to arise, uh, is essentially what we call it an inverse probit or a normal yeah. model. Right. And all it takes, all it uses, is the normal distribution and the difference in the in the projected means. That's it. And if you do, and so you 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 actually told me the answer, which is what is it, ninety seven out of? Well, I can tell you right now. I'll give it right now. Thanks to Matt. If if you bet a hundred dollars on the Patriots, yep, you win six dollars and fifty six cents. Okay, so that. So that that's that that predicts around a six percent, more like a five percent probability. But let me just give you what the normal model is. So if it's about one point seven standard deviations, which is about what it is, and if you if you use the normal distribution, but the it's Jets, just the one tail. It's only one tail. So the Jets would have to overcome one point seven standard deviations on the upside. Right. That's about five percent. Right. Yeah. Almost exactly. Yeah. No. No. So it's not. The, <laughs> it, no, it's, the whole reason I wanted it, to bring this right. up was is that this is one of those times where even if you thought there was maybe a miscalculation, Calibration, it's not far off. No, and it's, that's right. You know, it, the the math kind of gets it right. The sp- the Vegas spread kind of gets it right. right. Just based if all you just did, on betting, yeah. Mm-hmm. If, and if all you did was to say, I'm going to set the spread so that the normal distribution probability matches empirically what we know, which is not, by the way, bad yeah. statistics. Nope. Right. You would have it at about the spread that it is. I think it's pretty good. Yep. And, I, and I mean, I think it's I felt good about it, the field of statistics. And I mean, I don't track point spreads in college football. So I mean, this. I mean, it's kind of unusual. The very fact that we're talking about this is kind of unusual that we would get this high of a point spread in the United National Football League because usually all the teams are professional football teams. Hey, right? what are you saying about the Jets? Well, I, I, that, hey, was hey. More, that was more of a <laughs> that was more of a reference to I the think Dolphins. I'm starting for the, the Jets. Dolphins, this the Dolphins week. are. I mean, the Jets have had some bad luck and are not a very good team. The Dolphins. Dolphins are actively trying, trying not to be, to be a, a bad a, team. A, a well, I wanted to talk to you guys team. about yeah. that. Is there any? I I know it's different because I think we know the Patriots are good. But <laughs> is there any extra uncertainty in your mind around this because it's so early in the there season? Should be. Yeah. So no, no. So my comment Definitely. is like, it's it's unique because we know the Dolphins are trying to lose. We know that the Jets are on their third string quarterback now and like Le'Veon Bell's the backup quarterback as yeah. far as I know right now. If they if their third string quarterback Falk right, or whatever his name play is. The whole he, game in Wildcat might be the most successful strategy. No, it might actually be. Yeah. But my comment is is that if it wasn't a team intentionally trying to lose and another team on their third string quarterback wouldn't we be a little concerned yeah. that we're putting too much precision on these estimates of the Patriots and the Cowboys in one end, the Jets and the Dolphins at the other end, and so this different score should actually so have even actually a, a larger... random variable, by the yeah. way. That's what your point right. is. Exactly. But that, the fact that it's a random variable has kind of worked into the the normal distribution on the the standard deviation on, on the, on the I difference. I know, but you're taking but here you're thinking it's even bigger. But you're, yes, because you're taking, let's say, even the score differences throughout the whole season. Yep. Yeah. Early on in the season, maybe we're just not that sure sure how good these teams although no, I think in this right. case we know well yes I, I I think that's right though I think there is uncertainty about these ones as well I well, mean me, I don't know the Jets 
you know, again, third string quarterback, they have a, still a very good defense. So, I mean, well, that one I the think point. could be We're actually talking about the Jets? Actually, yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and uh, Darnold is out? Is that what? Uh, yes, yeah, so Darnold's Darnold, out. Yeah, Darnold yeah. has Trevor mono. Simeon's out. Well, he has mono. Okay. And I, Simeon's out for the season. He right. injured his, he's out for the season. He has, he's tore his ankle terrible up. terrible before going out, so I don't think that would really Yeah, that's not really hurting them. But let me go out to another football game that I wanted your guys' opinion on. Another New York team playing my beloved Buccaneers this week. So the Giants yeah. are at the Buccaneers this week, and the Giants have benched Eli Manning. And so Daniel Jones... There was who, an over-under on that last year. Do you think that's an end? Uh, be, before <laughs> we was. launch into that, do you think that's the end of uh, an era? Do you think Eli play, starts another game in the NFL? I don't think Eli starts another game, assuming Daniel Jones stays healthy. And is good. I don't know. No, 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 no. Even if he's not good, like what I end up happening is if they're zero and six, zero and seven, I don't know who the third string quarterback is for the Jets. Yeah, uh, Giants. I mean, but why not put that person in? Just see what. You and you have. don't, you don't think uh, Eli could? You know, the Giants. Now that they've made, the, I agree that the it's unlikely that unless Daniel Jones something happens like an injury. Uh, and they probably won't trade Eli because of that possibility. Well, but what if the Giants actually uh, – I mean, there's other teams. I mean, Eli's no, no. not I, – I don't disagree with the Giants' move here, but I think Eli is an upgrade over some teams' Oh, absolutely. quarterback Not situation. only current quarterback, but certainly backup. Like, I'll give you an example. Let's imagine you thought you're the – let's imagine you're the Pittsburgh Steelers who oh, just that lost would be Ben Roethlisberger That would be a nightmare scenario for a Pats fan yeah, if Eli I, goes to the Pittsburgh no, Steelers. No, I'm just saying, you think you have a championship-level defense – you're starting quarterbacks out for the season, or even let's say you're the Saints. You know, you were one play away from going to the Super Bowl. Drew Brees is now out six to eight weeks. Yeah. You trade for Eli Manning. He holds the ship. I'm not saying you're going to do that. It would be more a Roethlisberger situation because yeah. you don't want him backing up yeah, Drew no, Brees. I, well, and also, but all I'm commenting uh, on is there's no reason he couldn't end up yeah. starting or a good backup for another team. Matter of fact, yeah. if I were the Giants, I make it up, and I could get a, I don't know, a sixth, seventh round pick for Eli Manning. I would trade him now. Nope. Yeah. Interesting. Do you, here's a question. You bring up the Steelers. The Steelers have lost the first two games of the season. And their quarterback. And now, their quarterback. For the season. And uh, there was a, a conundrum that, that, that was being discussed on actually uh, Hot Takedown. I was listening to this. And the issue is, um, and Ben Morris had written about this historically, are the first two games better predictors of your final results than any other two games. They didn't phrase it this way. This is my rephrasing of their... They assumed it, that if you know oh. the first two games, you know more about the team's playoff chances than, than if you know... Two randomly than two randomly selected games? And they didn't answer that question. I think that's the question I want to have answered. And But here's that's my... I'll pose it to you before I jump down the rabbit hole when I, when I leave tonight, because I'm sure I'm going to want to calculate this or have one of my students do it. What do you think? Do you think the first two games great, are more predictive absolutely than any question. randomly two or, or any other well, two that you could pick? Well, so let me say why I think it's more predictive, but maybe not... Not highly. Let's imagine. I, so, if you're going to let me randomly pick, do you agree? Although it's a small probability, I could randomly pick the last two games of the season. It could, could happen. I'm actually, matter of fact, we know the number of combinatorics. We know the number. I'm actually asking you no, no, if you could I, pick the two. No, no. Which, which one would they be? Well, that's different. <laughs> when you said randomly pick, yeah, yeah. I think yeah. the late games in the season for teams that are out of the playoffs are not diagnostic necessarily of their true right. strength. And so, the first two games, I hate to say it. Every team come the start of game two has a chance to make the playoffs. You've, you're 0 and 1 right. or 1 and Everybody's 0. working hard. So yeah. I do think the first two games would be more diagnostic than later games in the season. I do. Even though, even though I know for years we've heard Shane talk about, ah, eh, so the Patriots are 4 and 3, 5 and 2. Who cares? They'll get it going in November and December. Those are the real, you know, you heard the lore in football. Those are the games that count. The other ones are just teams getting ready right. to make well, it. It's a good point. And, right. and, and, and I mean, again, I th it really does, I think, change my um, 
evaluation of this if I get to pick the two games. So which I, one would you? Well, pick? that's different. Well, I would, I would, I would, you know, I would certainly. So, for example, Baltimore's start to the season, they are two and zero. They look like world beaters. They have played Miami and they have played Arizona. The two kind of thought of, at least, as the two worst teams in the league going into this season. Is that particularly diagnostic? Or if I could actually right, pick but, them but, playing Cleveland no, I think, or, or, I think or the says. Patriots, so let me right. go back, let me go back I, I think I'm that would be more diagnostic. Yeah, I'm going to go back to my world yeah. of educational testing. So when you want to test whether someone's a smart student, what do you do? You give them test items that are near where you believe their ability are. When you have them play the worst teams, or you give them very simple items, if Adi, if I give Adi Weiner simple math problems and he gets them right, there's no nothing. knowledge gained. Right. And so Shane is exactly right. If you let me, forget their record at the time, yeah. you let me look at the schedule, and I'll pick games. Matter of fact, I won't even necessarily say, let's see Baltimore play the Patriots at this point, because I'll be honest with you. I don't think they're in the Patriots League right now. I think the Patriots are an extraordinary team. I think there's maybe two or three teams right now that would be competitive with them, and I don't think Baltimore's one of them. But I would love to see them play, I'll make it up, a healthy Saints team. I'd love to see them play a healthy... Oh, I don't know, some mediocre team in the... Uh, I'd like to see them go up against the Chargers, the Charge, who, who gave them such team. trouble in the playoffs but, but last year. if they played the Chiefs or the Patriots, sure. yeah. I don't think that's very... Di- no, yeah. no. So you, this is what... You're an information theory guy. This is what you do. You match your belief about their ability with the quality of the opponent. When those two are equal, that's the maximum information. Those are the games I would pick, so, if I could pick them. Okay, yeah. But let's back it away and say you don't get a chance to look at the schedule. You just okay, get yeah. a chance so, to so, pick. Now, just... So, so do we want... So one one choice is the first two. Another choice would be a random two. And the other choice would be which two. What would you go for? I'm going to guess. I'm going to say this way. I think most pl- – just my gut feeling tells me playoffs really get determined in weeks 13 through 15. I, I would want to see maybe – I'm making it up – the 13th and 14th game okay. of the season. There's a forecast. Um, as far I, – I think actually I'm, I'm – as far as learning, acro- learning the across two. the entire league, I actually would, I think, pick the first two games if I'm not given a choice otherwise. That's a choice. Um, just because I think it, they are quite diagnostic for teams that are going to be real bad right. and teams that are going to be real good. The middle part, I think, you know, the the Baltimores of the world or whatever, I think you might need like, later in the season. Shane's but. got a really good point here. And then I'd like to move on to a second topic, yeah. but let me just say this why this point is really good. What are you asking? This is a great statistics yeah. question. What are you asking it's diagnostic of? Like if you're asking me, is Playoff it— what, probability. Okay, that's different. Listen to what Shane said. Yeah. I mean, yeah. No, 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 no but this is different. If you're asking me what's diagnostic of the far right tail and the far left tail, I yeah. think the first two games probably are. If you're asking me, can a team still be a good team and the first two games don't matter as much? Yeah, I think that's possible. Matter of fact, it's so rare that a team, let's say, loses the first two games and goes on and has the best record in the conference or goes on and yeah. wins the Super Bowl. That's more rare than to say they make the playoffs. So that's just a lower threshold. So it's information about what event are you looking at. Here it's about making the playoffs. You're right. Yeah. So, so this is the this is the data point that was that that I that I threw out, which is that you essentially you have a. Uh, a 42% chance of making the playoffs, 41, 42% chance if you go one and one, but about 10% if you're 0 and 2. Yeah, that, that suggests a lot of discrimination. So, yeah. but I'm curious to know whether what those numbers are for well, any random. We're going yeah. to so find out. We have out. to work that out. So we're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, and I'm here this morning with Shane Jensen, professor of statistics, Adi Weiner, professor of statistics. If you want to join the conversation, please call us at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us at businessradio at siriusxm.com. And actually, I've been 
been doing a lot of tweeting lately uh, using our at W Moneyball account. So you can tweet us, tweet at us at at W Moneyball. All right, guys, so I wanted to go to another sport now. And, of course, it means if it's baseball, it means it has to deal with the Yankees. Of but, course. But, <laughs> there's, but, but there is a statistics point I want to bring out here. So Yankees had a big night last night, and it's not because they beat uh, an Angels team that's out of it. Oh, they hit like zero. four or five home runs. This is that's even not it either. Anymore? No, that's not they, either. Se- Luis, one come back. Luis Severino yeah. came back last mm-hmm. night, pitched yeah. four scoreless innings, hit 99 on the radar gun. And so I wanted to ask you about the following math, and am I wrong thinking about this? Let's imagine Severino makes is on the playoff roster, and let's imagine he even starts. How much is he worth to the Yankees' win probability? And I started to think, do the following math. Let's imagine he's 1 point ERA, 1.0, let's say better than who he'd replace. So maybe he's a three guy historically, and the average is around a four. Let's imagine he pitches half to two-thirds of the game. So now he's saved the Yankees 0.6 runs on average. Now we map that to the win probability in that game. Is that a bad way of thinking about the problem? I'm just thinking he's going to save the Yankees on average about six-tenths of a run. We can convert that yeah. into a win probability. And to me, I'm thinking that could make the Yankees a in, a in a regular game, instead of being a 50-50 against an opponent in the playoffs, maybe 55-45. Is that totally miscalibrated? No. I, well, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I would argue a little bit about maybe some of the values you use, but the framework you use, that kind of like, thought process i think is, is is a reasonable way of thinking about it certainly i mean i, I mean I, I don't i don't think he's necessarily you don't think if, he's if he is used it's unlikely he's going to be used for two-thirds of a game i mean do well, six innings? any good no way not the no yankees way. not, the yankees, not with the yankees they got like about 20 By relief way, pitchers it's, it's enormous and he's coming off an injury it's an it's an enormous impact for the yankees because the yankees have guys who can finish out a game really extraordinary guys from from britain to to otavio to uh to chapman and really finish it out. Conley, they, they got four, and, they, and in the playoffs, they could just play almost every game. Right. So the Yankees are really looking for four or five innings out of their starters, and mm-hmm. they haven't consistently gotten that. And that's why it, it's, a, it's for me, it's, I would e- easily argue a 5% does it also Does it also do anything in the following? Because I'm sure many of our listeners heard Wart and Moneyball are saying, you know, what about in, also its value in the, lo- in the rotation? Here's what I mean by that. Instead of maybe German, who's... Got a lot of wins, but not pitching great. Instead of him being the number two guy now, maybe he's number three. Like at some Paxson or Severino. Paxton, no, Severino, happy. Yeah. No, no, no. Oh, sorry. Yeah. So maybe Jermon even goes to four. Maybe the bullpen. Now, but, but, maybe- but you've already counted that with your sort of like one run over replacement. I mean, as well, far as, I, I mean, well, I, I personally don't buy into sort of like, oh, now how does the rotation line up? Because you know once you hit like the ALCS, it's going to be chaos anyway. Chaos, like right. You know, exactly. I mean, like. Okay, so it's yeah, not, but it's let not me, worth let me, anything to you that, me, that even if I was taking into account replacement over yeah. whoever it would be, that you know now maybe your fourth best starter doesn't even start anymore. So now, yeah, I mean that's who you would be, but right, that's, who but you'd that, be that's kind off. of how you'd be. But let me let me out, contrast yeah. these two approaches because essentially there's there's one approach which you began with, which is the baseline approach. Just just think how many runs he saves, what does that calculate out, yeah. and what does that turn well, into I have probability? The numbers right here. Before you finish, I have the numbers right here. His ERA in 2017 was 2.98. It was 3.39 last year, and so I'm not that miscalibrated. The Yankees' ERA is 4.35. So to say that he's a run better even than the replacement on the Yankees, 
out of not, nine. Yeah, right. is, out of nine innings. Yeah. Is not that far off. So at no, least I got that right. part of the no, calibration and, 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 not totally and yeah, 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 six, that's point right. six, I think, would translate out to about a 5% extra yeah. win probability. Without, I, without a doubt in my mind. I, but here's the contrast. You do it one way with base rates and run saves and leave it at that. Or the other is tell a long story about the Yankees and their bullpen and how that aligns it. And what most people are inclined to do is the latter, to tell yeah. the story and then build a narrative about, about something. And it turns out, guess what works better? Yeah. The base rates. Right. I mean, it works better on average. Well, because a lot, a lot of these sort of narratives that we create are based on our retrospective observation of what's happened in right. playoffs past, and they aren't particularly prospective. Because I, I do think, kind of, once you get into the baseball playoffs, it's kind of an all hands on deck kind of situation. From like, let me just be game clear. two or three on. Let me just be clear for our listeners here: what Shane's last point was. Not yeah. that I, I thought it was clear, but just to be clear, you can make up a story about what happened in the past. In fact, you can collect lots yeah. of stories and you may find some pattern, but your question, which is what statisticians care about, is, you know, it's the old statistics joke, you don't need statistics to predict the past. You need to predict the future. So your comment is, this narrative or story you can construct, yeah. let's see it actually do well in prediction, out of sample right. prediction for future games, that's where it's going to fail. You can construct a retrospective yeah. story, but let's actually use it and we for will. prediction. And we will. We, we will. will. Whatever happens in this year's playoffs, we'll construct a retrospective story about why that's it Right. happened but if, um and just like i mean i and i know i, I kind of like these debates but i don't think they're particularly you know yeah, like I, would, I just wanted to bring to you guys it, no, i just was so excited as a yankees fan yeah. that severino came back i yeah. was just trying to put a little math on how much i thought it could impact it and actually and i'm trying to be a little negative about no, it no, just no. out of I, principle i know but i just thought i've <laughs> never thought, seen that before no but i thought by the way the fact that the Envelope math, which mm -hmm. I call it. I, I wasn't saying I went to the computer and did yeah. a bunch of simulations. The envelope math, thanks to Adi, led to told me it led to about a five percent, and that's what my intuition would have guessed. Which means maybe I'm intern, maybe I've been studying baseball for a long time and I'm internally calibrated. A lot of people might have given, I would think, a higher number than that. I think five percent is probably about not more than so, that. So, so let me uh, let me ask you what I think is a harder question. They gained Severino, and I mean, I'm I'm with you on that definitely being a boost to them. They lost Batances, or well, they've know, never had him. Really, they never had year. Batances. But to the extent that you were planning on having Batances for this deep playoff run that we're all anticipating, does him being out like give a probability to that? I, I actually, it's I think losing Batances, Batances would have been valuable because he would have done four. He could have done every game. And uh, and Severino only every fourth yeah. or fifth, but he only would do but like he, right. at maximum an but inning maximum in any of those games. But he's, you know, it, 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 it's I don't think he so would have added five percent scale. I think collectively Severino? on the same, oh, okay. uh, collectively uh, over all the games, not quite the same because I think ultimately one reliever isn't as valuable as one starter. Well, I think also but, given the way this is also why statistics within context is important. If you told me this was the because I've seen them play, if you told me this was the L.A. Dodgers and they lost a critical closer, I'd say, wow, that's you know. Or the mm -hmm. Red Sox yeah. in years past. The Yankees got five guys. You just yeah. named five guys that could be the closer on a lot of teams. Just and they're all about... on the Yankees. So it's not just it's the replacement loss of Batances, given what the Yankees have, I don't think is as high as they are, Severino. But they're they are, ga they are no. gaining somebody in a, in, a relative, in a relative area of weakness for the Yankees. Correct. And losing somebody in a, in a relative, relative area of but strength. But let me, let me point out something right. that, that typically happens in the playoff that doesn't happen all year round. I'm curious to know whether the Yankees will do it and what you, whether you think they will. If you remember the great years of Mariano Rivera, what made him so spectacular in the playoffs, and in many ways that was his jewel, the way he performed in the playoffs he would pitch two innings 
game in and game out in the World Series. Two innings. Are the Yankees going to do this with any of their setup men, their their mid mid men, the Conley, the, the Otavio, the Britton, and and Chapman? Will well, they so, all they stick to the so one? So I, I look to you guys who kind of comb through the baseball data better than I do. Let's just do. Let's just talk about it in a Moneyball way. Yeah. So the question becomes: Let's even imagine that. Well, a couple things. Let's imagine you have a, be, a one pitcher that's better than another pitcher. But does that mean he's better for six outs versus three? There's yeah. fatigue as part of it. Second is baseball players learn. So even if they're not facing him, the other people on the on-deck circle in the dugout is, can watch the movement and watch the stuff. So the question is, which is better, having two people for three outs each or one person trying to get six right. outs? And, it's I w- a, I mean, and I would argue that Marion Rivera clearly, I mean, oh, he had he's, goods, he's right. not a good <laughs> option. People knew what was he's coming. He's too yeah, unique, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I yeah. think a pitcher to really base much inference on because I think his particular kind of pitching strategy and that unhittable pitch that he had. Yeah, they knew what was coming. He could probably throw that all game if you know, and and nobody could hit it, and they couldn't adapt to it. And he, I think, it also prevented a lot of fatigue that other kind of just sort of like straight up heat hitters. So let me ask you a question, and then I want to go to one other baseball topic before we finish our first quarter here on Morton Moneyball. Um, Why can't you be as a manager what we would call Bayesian, which is I send. Adovino out there. Adovino, yeah. Adovino looks great. Adovino got three outs and nine pitches. You're back out there. Oh, you struggled a little bit. You didn't give up any runs, but you threw 27 pitches. You're out of there. Why do I need to make this decision you can be dynamic. except exactly. in real time? Yeah. Why yeah, no, not be I mean, dynamic I, no, about I, this? I, I assume most of these decisions are kind of made in because, real time. Because most managers, I think, are, are are very programmatic. And if they've used pitchers in a certain way, I they, agree they with will that. not mm-hmm. change. And and that because that opens them up to criticism, even though I think in these in these playoff situations, a lot is to be gained. But you talk about Odovino. He's got a, he's got the exact yeah. opposite of, uh, of Rivera. Rivera's right. fastball uh, cutter broke very late and very little, and it was impossible. To yeah. hit. And Odovino has this unbelievable. And, and, and this is another. Stint. This is another part of the retrospective prospective game. Yeah. I actually really love is that for some manager is going to make a bunch of decisions. All the managers yeah, can right, make a bunch right. of decisions in the playoffs. For the at least well, one of the managers is going to kind of work out, <laughs> and for other managers not. And that man, the manager for which it works out, we'll is going to be, be considered yeah. a genius <laughs> for at least a short amount of time. And not a G, and the other ones are going to be considered idiots. I can just say with with Yankee fans, Aaron Boone's got a lot of street cred in the bank. But either way, let's just move on to one last topic Um, in the last two minutes we have. So can you tell all our listeners here how much into perspective? So Pete Alonso just hit his 48th home run yesterday. Uh, Obviously, the record is our guy, Aaron Judge, 52. But can you put into perspective... Like, how would you estimate or how would you go to people how rare it is? Like, he's probably going to get to 50. I mean, there's 12, 13 games left. He's certainly on pace to get to 50. How would you even go to somebody and say, is this a 1% event, a 1,000% event? I mean, one thing we could do is we could just add up all the rookies that have ever played, that have played a full season. We could just be pure empiricists and say, it's number two that's done it. It's two out of, I'll make it up 10,000. That's the odds. We could fit a statistical model to home runs and try to compute some normal distribution tail probability. In 30 seconds each, would you be a brute empiricist to say it's 
we have lots of rookies that have played. I don't need a statistical model. I'm just going to jam in the maximum likelihood estimate. There's been two out of 10,000. Or would you fit some model to this? I'll start you, with you, Shane. You'd need some model because I think non-stationarity of the entire distribution is a huge part of this story. Clearly, I think the entire population of baseball players is, is kind of shifting in terms of their home run rates. And so I think you could only build that into your calculation via a model so you're saying 50 today might be 35 in yeah 1954. yeah I mean, that's right, right. well it, if you think about it though great point essentially i think it is a mixture i think it there's a there's a certain fraction of players who have that even in their possible range of of you know their ability level and then there's a certain ones that just can't everybody's shifted up the, that bottom group if you think back when we were kids there was a huge fraction of the league who couldn't hit five 10 absolute right. tops and that was the dominant and then you had your home run hitters remember we actually made a model to yeah, do this for, for home run forecasting and yeah. i think that's in some ways those two groups have have, cl have closed that gap is closed and so what we've seen is that almost anybody can hit 20 25 now my real question is is the top percentage any different and that's the ones that matter but even they have a higher chance so i would not i would be modeling i wouldn't be base rating but i'd still say it's about a, at least a one in a one in a hundred uh, see well not maybe not season but maybe one in a, a 40 year season event i think it's remarkable what either Alonso's way it's, it's, doing. it's remarkable yeah. well this has been the first quarter of one money work money ball we have three quarters to go stay with us and join us after the break this is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen. Adi Weiner had to step out because we have to do this thing called teaching, but some combination of myself, Shane, Adi, and Cade Massey are here every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern, here on Sirius XM Business Radio 132, powered by the Wharton School. If you want to join the conversation, very easy to do. Just call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. You can also email our producer, Matt Datz, at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. So, Shane, obviously we're dead in the heat of football season here. You and I are obviously huge football fans, and we're fortunate to have Scott Sainert on the line. Scott is the director of sports performance and nutrition at, well, I wouldn't say a team that you and I love, but, you know, I wouldn't say I've a team. I've got a soft spot for the Dallas you Cowboys, You do have a soft actually, spot for yeah. the Cowboys. Well, he's the director of sports performance and nutrition at the Cowboys. Prior to joining the Cowboys, he was a sports dietitian at Auburn. He's worked at Michigan State. He's also worked with U.S. Speed Skating. So, Scott, uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thank you. Good morning, guys. Good morning, and thank you. I know this is obviously an active part of the season, and so, um, you know, thanks for joining us here. Oh, my pleasure. Could you talk to us first about your background? So tell us, you know, I mentioned a little bit about your work at Auburn and Michigan State, but, like, what was your career path and background that allowed you to do sports nutrition and dietitian and now for a major uh, NFL team? Sure, yeah. Well, my, my undergraduate degree is in dietetics uh, from Ball State University, and uh, and then uh, I have graduate degrees from the University of Kentucky in nutritional science, and then also at Michigan State University in exercise physiology. Uh, and so that sort of background that sounds to make it that sounds pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that background just helped me sort of you know have an understanding of what's going on uh, metabolically in the body. That that kinesiology background, and then obviously the the, the, the dietetics and and clinical training that I got uh, I went through to become a registered dietitian, kind of paired that that aspect of nutrition and exercise physiology and. And, uh, and so that's where all of the sports nutrition practice began at Michigan State and then on to Auburn. Can you give us a sense of are you a unique bird out there? Like how many teams out there that you know have somebody that's sitting in your role? So a lot of teams have strength coaches and coaches that are trained, you know, and part of the training staff. But to have someone that's got 
expertise in physiology, kinesiology, dietitian. Are you, could, do all 32, does every team have somebody like you? Well, I think there's probably 20 to 24 teams right now that have employed a full-time sports dietitian. And then within that, there might be, a, I know within, within our division, uh, the, the other three teams in our division, they have a strength coach and registered dietitian that, that serve a dual role. Uh, and so they're going to have a background in exercise physiology, but perhaps more in the biomechanics and the strength conditioning side than I have. Um, and, and, but there are folks certainly within uh, the NFL that have similar backgrounds and, and experiences and, and are doing similar things. I think the, the primary role of folks in my position is working uh, on a nutrition only sort of side. I've, I'm, I'm fortunate to have the opportunity to sort of delve into the exercise physiology uh, side of things here. So the, on the, when you say the nutrition side, just for all of us clear, I can yeah. imagine lots of areas, maybe you could just tell us which ones. Like, for example, I could imagine, let's call it literally game day nutrition. I can yeah. imagine weekly nutrition. I can imagine off-season nutrition. Do you focus on kind of I'll call it all of them, and also how individualized is this? Like, does you know, does the quarterback Dak Prescott have a different one than Zeke Elliott? Zeke Elliott, or, or a like one I, than Amari I would assume, Cooper, or the, by the lineman. Versus... Yeah, the nutritional needs of a lineman probably is are, are, are substantially different than the nutritional needs of a defensive. Back. Or since we're an analytics show, using the term, how much heterogeneity is there mm. in the nutritional needs of players? And do you how much t you know if you like individualized? nutrition is there for a given player versus another no question so um that there's a lot to that and everything that deals with hydration nutrition um for our team uh in season certainly and then and and then the guys that are around in the off season i'll have a hand on that uh and that does deal with the day-to-day -day nutrition from uh when we have heavy practice days like today and tomorrow our friday practices are still pretty intense and and, and fast and so we have uh, some focused nutrition efforts on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Obviously, then we're getting into preparation for a game day, whether it be a Sunday, a Monday. There are the occasional Thursdays. Um, and so the, the nutrition in general has, um, has a very consistent sort of, of, of feel and need for each player, uh, and that's because carbohydrates are fuel for intense movements. Um, whether you're a defensive back or whether you're an offensive lineman, you're doing high-intensity repeated bouts of movement, and that requires carbohydrate for fuel. So by and large, the base of every player, uh, I would almost argue in the NFL, but certainly with the Dallas Cowboys, is going to be based on carbohydrates. Um, from there, it does get very individualized. The amount of carbohydrates for a 300-pound player is very different than a 180-pound player um, because it's going to be based on body weight. Um, same thing goes for the amount of protein that athlete needs. So there are some, some individual variations, and then it gets at you know, the general performance and energy levels of each player. Um, again, it's not, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of cookie-cutter approach uh, by any means. Uh, and that's where having the opportunity to be here day in and day out, to have you know, two meals each day with these guys, uh, allows me to just sort of coach from the plate and help them um, be individualized, but it's not a, a written-out meal plan. Um, it's, it, it gets very difficult for guys to just have that meal plan on a piece of paper on their phone, whatever, and feel like they got to follow it. But if I'm in that training table with them and can help direct them based on how they were feeling yesterday, how they're you know, preparing perhaps 
we've got an injury and this guy's going to get some more reps. So he needs to have just a little bit more fuel on board to make sure he's ready to get through all the reps he's going to have in that practice. So there's, there's some individual variation that happens day to day, really. It's not even just being able to say, okay, it's Wednesday, so we need to eat this. How much uh, has, yeah, I want to ask you, how much has technology changed your job? Like, are these players wearing sensors all the time where you can say, oh, time for Amari Cooper to carb load because by sensors on his body, I can tell this, or wow, he's dehydrated right now because I could measure that on his body. Like, has our players, how censored up our players? And if the answer is yes, would that change what you do? So the, the technology sort of ebbs and flows, I'd say, and what they uh, get excited about wearing and what they don't get excited about wearing. We, we certainly utilize GPS, um, and so practices are monitored. Obviously, games are monitored in the NFL. And so we know generally you know, the, the external load of the players. And based on that, especially week-to-week variation, we can talk about needing a higher need of, of, of carbohydrates, whatever those sort of things might be. We are not – Beyond that, monitoring guys, um, you know, the, if you're aware, Sleep Number is, is, a, is a major NFL sponsor, and so a lot of the players have Sleep Number beds, and so their, their sleep is monitored, but that's individual. Uh, we'll talk about that just individually, but I'm not seeing all that information as far as the team goes. Um, and, and so those sort of things, we'll look at that, but it's, it's so much subjective information. It's so much of just how they're feeling day to day, how well they're feeling recovered, um, you know, what are we dealing with if it is, if it's a small nagging kind of injury that just requires perhaps a few more anti-inflammatory foods in their diet, uh, to help decrease some of that inflammation. Uh, this is Shane Jensen. The qu- question that kind of popped in my mind, given that your background basically consists of you kind of going from the college game to the NFL, how much has your kind of, you know, knee, you know, basically advice or, or, or methodology, or recommendations change from going from college NFL. I would imagine because you know players are a little bit older, and they you know the season lasts a different length of time. Are those kind of like did you have to kind of adapt whatever techniques you were using in uh, or plans that you were using in college to the NFL, or is is that kind of is that small difference kind of swamped by the individual heterogeneity you've been talking about? I think the the that's a real issue. I would say just in the sense of. The length of the season, the age of the athletes, the the, the physicality of, of the NFL compared to the college football uh, is, is very real. And so the recovery aspects as we progress into the season and into the playoffs is is really the driver of, of what we're trying to achieve, at least what I'm trying to treat, achieve in the guys is is how well we can recover week to week and have that that readiness of each player as, as high as possible. And so that's different than the college setting of – um, you know, we go through a really high volume and it's a busy schedule for those college players that, you know, from six in the morning until 10 p.m., their, their schedule so full from from workouts to practices, to study tables and classes that um, it, the, the, the variation is making sure that they have time to to eat, to, to, to get that food, that fuel into them to now we can be a, a, a little bit more. Um, I don't want to say that the quality is different because of that we're not just feeding guys fast food in the college level, um, but just that that sense of urgency to get nutrition into the players in the college is different than 
professional level, we have just a, a greater opportunity to feed so we can have a little more time. But then the, the focus for myself relies so much on the recovery aspects, and which, which revolves around fluid replacement, electrolyte replacement. Again, as I mentioned, those high antioxidant-type foods and then high-quality proteins as well. So we're here talking to Scott Sainert. Scott is the Director of Sports Performance and Nutrition here at the Dallas Cowboys. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball here on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. And if you have a question for Scott or for Shane or myself, you can call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. And since we're kind of talking about this distinction between the college and professional game, have you kind of noticed a difference in how much buy-in, essentially, you get from the players, from the coaches, et cetera, at these two different levels? I can imagine, you know, professional players, are they, they are a little bit more adult. They are a little bit more, you know, they kind of are perhaps a little bit uh, more conscientious about these types of things. But, you know, the, the college athletes are more in, in kind of a structure where you can tell them what to do a little bit more, I think. So what, what, what are your kind of experiences with kind of differences in buy-in at the two different levels? Yeah, and that's the that's the unique aspect of nutrition is you know you can you can coach guys up as much as possible, but they're really dependent upon what they're putting in their bodies. Where, you know, a strength coach can can give them the sheet of what they need to accomplish that day, or the coach is going to tell them the the individual workouts that they're going to be doing out at practice, and that's going to be what they're, they have to do. Nutrition is just different. We're going to try and influence them and hopefully change behaviors. Um, and so I, I see a lot of consistencies. You know, the young players in college um, feel like they've got it all figured out and they're going to get where they want to be on a starting roster or an All-American, whatever it might be. Um, and, and the same could be said for a rookie a lot of times, that they come in and they've been the best player in, in the college setting and they feel like they're going to have it figured out. Now, this is just a generality. It's not always the case. But um, as that player progresses into the second, third, and, and getting into that fourth year, perhaps they they think more about that second contract. And so they start doing everything they need to do to try and get that second contract. Or now they're in their third or, or longer contract that they're trying to hold on to 10 years or, or, or more. Um, they start recognizing how nutrition impacts recovery performance, um, certainly when it comes to, to changes in body composition. And so there there tends to be that sort of buy-in as the years progress in the college setting it's those guys that are trying to get to the nfl so they're doing everything they can at that point um and so there's variations in that i think certainly the buy-in by and large is greater in the nfl because this truly is their their life this is their career now so so they want to do the best they can in that yeah so scott i got a lot of questions but remember we're a statistics show so i've got a let me head that a slightly different track but it obviously relates to your work so how do you know what you're doing is working? So, you know, we're measurement people. Like, when you track players over time, like, do you, like, I, I can imagine as a statistician, but you're going to tell me in a second I'm entirely wrong. If I could imagine intake and I could imagine measuring output, I could relate intake to outtake, which is given what a player eats or sleeps or whatever, I could track their performance and you could go to the player and say, see, when you didn't sleep well, when you didn't eat well, like, how do you know, like, how do you, how does any organization know that what you're doing is having an impact? How do you measure success? How, let's put it that way. Yeah, that's a great question. And it's a difficult one. Just as I was saying with the, the fact that what they put in their bodies from when they wake up until when they go to sleep is, is dependent upon them not on me. And so uh, as generic as it might sound, I base my success on the thank yous that I get. Um, I think that um, I can monitor weight in a player, but again, it's going to be dependent upon 
what they're putting out on the field and in the weight room and what they're putting back in their body fuel-wise. I think we can measure different markers of performance, but there's so many variables that get involved in, you know, a, a, a max squat, a jump, a vertical jump, um, a speed out on the field. So many different things get involved in that, that we can't just say nutrition plays a, the, the primary role of that outcome. Uh, and so if a, if a player tells me that they're, they're recovering better, they're feeling better, uh, that their energy levels are higher, there's so many things that get involved in that. But if they feel like I've, I've changed my nutrition in this way and that made an impact, then that's that's my marker of success is, is how, how are players feeling recovering? Is it easier for them to maintain the weight that they feel best at? Um, again, there's things that I can I can measure, but it's it's so there's so many variables involved and so much individual impact of what the player's doing by what they're eating and drinking that it's hard for me to say I implemented this and this was the outcome. And so we, we have well, to let me let me build on that is has experimentation made its way into your field like for example i'll just make up a, a simple one um instead of drinking i'm making it up i don't even know who's a sponsor of the cowboys or the nfl but instead of drinking gatorade plus you should be drinking this other performance drink so we're going to do a randomized experiment where on some days we drink gatorade plus and on the other days we drink this performance drink we're going to track i don't know your speed number i mean does maybe that's not an experiment you would run, but I mean, has the idea of experimentation made its way into the field of nutrition science and at the NFL level? Yes, I, I think there's, you know, research is, is something that every good sports dietitian is going to be on top of and, and, and reading. Um, but so often, especially when it comes to sports nutrition, uh, the funding, the NIH funding is not there for, or for sports nutrition because it's on obesity management or cancer prevention that, you know, how an NFL player performs is not important to the National Institutes of Health. And so we need to take um, some liberties, I, I guess you could say, in, in other areas of research, um, be confident that there'd be no negative side effects to it and see how that might work within our players health recovery performance uh, and so it becomes anecdotal it becomes um, uh, an n of one or three or, or 12 um, but that does occur um, there, there's no question about that could you talk about how, you know, I'm not just saying this because my colleague Shane Jensen here is uh, Mr. Patriot, and of course he's led by the physical marvel that is Tom Brady. What do you think about people that take their nutrition training diet to the extreme, like at least Tom Brady is known to do? As I know it's a small sample size, but like, how much do you think that's contributed to his performance at age 42? Well, I think there's so many, there's so many lifestyle behaviors that can impact your, your overall health, your performance, your recovery. And so I think, again, for these gentlemen that, that go through uh, such physical uh, demanding and damaging aspects that um, the, the greater level of, of intensity they put into sleep, hydration, nutrition, uh, all these different recovery modalities um, that, can, that can be implemented, um, the better. Now, I don't want it to become... Uh, be such a mental aspect of it, and I'm no sports psychologist or, or clinical psychologist, that, that it, it becomes a, a source of anxiety, a source of stress uh, in a bad way for them. But I, I certainly believe that, um, that every small piece of the puzzle has a, has a huge impact on, on, the, on the overall level of performance and recovery for them. There's some things I don't think you can avoid. You're just going to sometimes get hit in a way that you can't 
con c uh, control, and so that injury can still happen. Um, but perhaps how long the injury lasts, how, how well you're able to recover from it, uh, and strength-wise, the nutrition and, and other behaviors have a role then. So we have only just a couple minutes left. I wanted to ask you, what's the future like what as you know, if we're having you back on, you know, Shane, I hope we're still on the air in five years, 10 years. Let's imagine we have you back on here at Wharton Moneyball in five years. What are we talking about as the vanguard, as the pinnacle of nutrition and sports science? What, what do you, is it technology? Is it everything gets measured? Is it every team now has bought into this? Is it, you know, I don't know, we, there's a magic pill. Well, what is the future of nutrition and sports science? I think we continue to learn that, that we're all very individual and in, in how our bodies respond and, and, and just the normal um, normal aspects. I think there are very standard measurements of health for the ferritin levels, which is a marker of iron storage, for instance. But an individual may store higher levels of iron than another individual. And so a, a drop in them might still be a normal um, a normal value, but it's abnormal for that individual. So I think the individual um, um, markers of health, whether it be blood draws, you know, the DNA testing that's coming around, it's, it's not where it needs to be as far as really telling us what um, athletes should and should not be consuming, but it might be getting closer. Um, I, I think those researchers feel like it will happen. Uh, it's not there yet, but I think the DNA testing might be something that's of, of value in 5, 10, maybe 20 years. It's hard to really say. Um, I think that and, and the biomarker monitoring of athletes will probably become uh, really where a big future aspect of, of nutrition and performance lies. Maybe one last question just in the last one minute we have. Um, will this eventually become a controversial issue in the NFL Players Association, like who owns the data, and do teams have the right to be monitoring all this stuff? I don't want to put you in an awkward spot here, but how do you see that developing? Oh, sure. That's, uh, you know, and that's a tough one for me to say for sure. I think um, I, I understand certainly why the players would want to have privacy within some of that. I think if, uh, if it truly gets to their overall health, uh, I hope and think they would be open to that if it's just simply dealing uh, around uh, injury uh, opportunity. Uh, if, you're, if you're trying to guesstimate if this athlete could get hurt or, the estimate if this, or guesstimate if this athlete's truly going to be the, the best athlete, that's going to be where I think there's going to be some, some pushback, and, and rightly so in my opinion. Well, Scott, we want to thank you uh, for being here on Wharton Moneyball. Scott is the Director of Sports Performance and Nutrition at the Dallas Cowboys. Prior to joining the team, he was the sports dietitian at Auburn. He's worked with U.S. Speed Skating. Um, normally, Scott, at this point, we would wish the uh, guest luck in their job, but you understand we're sitting here in the city of brotherly love. I'm not sure I, I could stay on the air and make my way out of this building if I were to wish you luck, but with whatever it means, good luck in their future with the Dallas Cowboys. No worries. Appreciate that, guys. Thanks for having me. Scott, thank you for being here on Wharton Moneyball. So, Shane, I, I just found it fascinating that, um, you know, sports science is it's real and teams are using it. Yeah. And I mean, I think it is going to be increasingly. I mean, I, the word one of the biggest words that came up through that entire conversation was recovery over and over and over again. Great and point. I think that is something that I think teams are are trying to kind of confront very actively right now, whether you talk about injury recovery or just the day-to-day -day grind recovery. Keeping their athletes on the field is a huge part of the equation that I think teams are going to be devoting increasing resources to in the future. Well, we don't need to recover here on Wharton Moneyball, and nor do you. It's one half down, one half to go. Stay with us and join us for the second half of Wharton Moneyball. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball, the show where my favorite topics, sports statistics and business collide. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics here at the Wharton School, and I'm here with my co-host this morning and friend, Shane Jensen, professor of statistics. If you want to join the conversation, very easy to do. Call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Some combination of myself, Shane, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey are every Wednesday morning live, 8 to 10 a.m. here on Wharton Moneyball. Well, Shane, we've always talked about the fact that one of the lucky things we have being here on Morton Moneyball is we get to talk to some of the leading the thought leaders in the world of applying analytics right on the front lines, and certainly our next guest, Brian Burke, is no exception. Uh, for those people that don't know, Brian is a many-time guest here on Morton Moneyball, former Navy pilot, early pioneer of modern football analytics. He's currently the senior analytics specialist at ESPN, a writer at ESPN.com and a longtime friend of the show. So, Brian, uh, this is Eric Bradlow, and I'm here with Shane Jensen. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Oh, thanks for having me back. Well, Brian, it's, it's great to talk to you, and especially given, you know, what you've just been tweeting about lately. So we could ask you lots and lots and lots of things, but maybe before we get to that, you could tell us, I'm sure there are many people, many of our listeners that say, wow, I'd love a ESPN career path. And, you know, um, could you tell people, what was your path that got you to ESPN? What's your background? How are you now involved in all the things that you're doing? What was your training? I'm sure people would love to hear about it, just briefly. Yeah, uh, don't don't uh, bother trying to uh, repeat what I did. I don't think it's possible, but um, I, I played uh, football in high school, but that was it. I did, I'm not a football player, not a coach. I was just a fan. Um, I went to the Naval Academy. I studied aerospace engineering, mostly space stuff, um, undergrad. And then I became a jet pilot. I flew something called the F-18 Hornet as a career in the Navy uh, for a number of years. The Navy, for some reason, decided to send me to grad school. So I went to the Naval Postgraduate School and learned a lot of uh, stats, um, what we would call econometrics, I guess, a lot of multivariate uh, regression. Never used it again in my Navy career, and then uh, got out of the Navy and got interested in in things like sports and football again. And um, I uh, I really thought I was I was very confused because the level of analysis in football was was it's and still is pretty poor. Um, and I thought, gosh, we have all these stats now. We have all this data. We have the internet. We have these tools to analyze these things. We can really do some interesting things. And so I just got addicted to that uh, as a hobby. I started a website. Um, a couple years later, the New York Times called, said, hey, you want to write for us? So I had a column in the New York Times for about five years. That's a good start. Um, yeah. Yeah. I thought, yeah, I'll start with the New York Times and then work my way up. Um, and then teams started to call. And uh, so a bunch of teams just, just uh, looked me up and asked me to do some analysis for them and consult for them. Uh, and then uh, I decided to turn this into my, my day job. So this was all just a hobby and for fun. Um, and then uh, so I went back to school. I studied operations research at George Mason. I teach there now. Um, and uh, uh, then joined ESPN. They had been recruiting me for a few years, and I, I finally gave in and, and uh, joined on. Well, first, let me just say, uh, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but first of all, thank you for your service. Um, this really is 
I hate to say it. I'm sitting here thinking this is, I know I've heard the story many times. This is an American success story. Think about this, uh, Shane. So he's trained, you know, in space physics. He just says, serves as a Navy pilot, goes back and learns statistics at Conometrics. Then he goes back and studies OR. And he was just doing sports stuff on the side for fun. And then it led to the New York Times and then ESPN. And, uh, you know, it's almost as fun as you and I are having as professors. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. My my origin story is not nearly as interesting. But I think it, I, I, I think it always fascinates me kind of, you know, taking a very kind of broad description of our field as data science or whatever you want to call it. Just the header, the, the, the kind of diversity of backgrounds of people that end up in this because, you know, I mean, data is kind of basically in, you know, part of every human endeavor now. And so you're just kind of our, our, our kind of larger field is pulling in people from all over the place. It's really pretty, uh, pretty thrilling. Yeah. So thanks. First of all, Brian, I'm sure our listeners are Wharton Ball really enjoyed the story. Could you tell us about what you're doing lately? We know you've been tweeting lately about NFL tracking data. Could you tell us a little bit about what data kind of ESPN and you have and kind of uh, what you've been doing around machine learning and uh, what you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I'm a very, very fortunate person in a lot of ways, um, and definitely fortunate that we have access to uh, the player tracking data through the NFL's next-gen stat system. So uh, NFL provides a number of different metrics like speeds, top speeds, and things like that. Um, and uh, <clears throat> as part of our, our broadcast um, agreement with the NFL, we, we've um, gained access to the, to the raw data, and so we thought we can we can do some really interesting things. We want to be innovative um, at ESPN and provide as uh, you know in, as much insight as we can to the fan. Can we just uh, be clear so, about what exactly that is? Just to be clear, every player. I just it, maybe I've got this wrong. Every player has a sensor on his uh, let's call it helmet or jersey or etc. And you have continuous time motion tracking data of every player on the field. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, there are actually two chips. Um, they're, they're tracking chips in each uh, shoulder pad, and uh, the data is very good. Um, it's not noisy. It's uh, at 10 hertz, so we get 10 updates per second. And we have X, Y. Uh, we have speed data, um, acceleration, and shoulder orientation as well, which is um, very helpful for some of the things we do. So could you take us through a path? Like, you know, I'm almost like, let's imagine you were at George Mason, you were teaching your students. Like, where do you even, this would be a great lesson for everybody. A lot of people say, oh my God, this sounds like great data, but you could also imagine this could be overwhelming. Where do you get started even with data like that? Like, what were your first hypotheses about things to look at? What kind of exploratory analysis to do? Before we get to machine learning and, you know, all of that, like, where do you begin? That is a great question because it took weeks and weeks for us to just get our arms around the data, just to start downloading it, archiving it, being able to access it. So, you know, 90% of your job as a data science uh, data scientist is, is probably just managing the data in some way, more like data engineering. Um, I'm fortunate to have uh, some, you know, staff. So I'm on a team of people and we uh, collaborate. And so uh, there's someone named Hank Gargiulo who uh, handles all the, the wrangling and downloading and storing and, and everything. So that was a big chore. The first thing we did was, what are the axes? Which way is up? Like, hmm. which, <laughs> which way is the X? Which, is, which way is the Y? Uh, where is the origin? Where is zero, zero? Is it at the, the corner of the end zone or is it at the, you know, the corner of the goal line? 
uh, things like that we, we had to figure out which which way is the compass pointing, you know, which way is north in, in the orientation and directional data. Uh, that was the very first thing we had to do. Okay, and then what? tell us about the first set of, you know, let's imagine you didn't go straight to machine learning. Let's imagine you might have done some, I don't know, plots, some basic regressions, some bar charts, some cross tabs, some histograms of stuff. What were the first things that interested you? Was it around max speed? Was it around acceleration? Was it around, um, I assume, by the way, you can tie this motion data to actually outcome data of the plays. Like, what did yeah. you do to start? Just to, what were the first types of problems you started working on that would be like, wow, the fan would be interested yeah. in this? It's funny you ask because there's, I have, you know, you know how <laughs> I have terrible configuration management um, practices. Like I name my files, my script files, my analysis files when I'm writing code. You know, like this uh, player tracking first try dot r, let's say, and the f player tracking first try two dot r. And I'm st I'm, st <laughs> I'm still using those those scripts because uh, my v very first thing I did was just to build a um, like a handy function that just found the distance between every single player, you know, any player and every other player on the field. We were getting requests from researchers and analysts for like separation between between a receiver and defender at That's the time a good of one. throw and stuff like that. So we were getting these repeated requests. So to just automate all that, I said, okay, I'll just write a script that, that does that. And then right away we're like, well, we now we know who's in coverage, who's covering who and who's responsible for that receiver. So now we know um, which cornerbacks are giving up, you know, big plays, and th we can measure those things. So right away, that was the first thing we did. Then I realized, this is something I talked about, I think, last year on your show. I said, well, if I know um, how close players are to each other, I know who's blocking. Mm -hmm. So now we know a lot of information about blocks. So Get a much that, higher resolution picture of the, the pocket that the quarterback is kind of existing yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. So if I know that um, uh, I'm very close to you and my shoulders are oriented towards you, I'm probably very, very probably blocking you. And so on pass plays, pass blocking is actually pretty basic. You know, the, the goal is, is always the same thing for a pass rusher as to get to the quarterback. So if I've been blocking you and then you are now closer to the quarterback than I am, now you've won that block. So now we can measure the effectiveness of blocking we turned it into a survival metric, so like reliability statistics. And so we know individual blockers, line uh, blocking, pass rushing as well, so we can measure the effectiveness of those things. So now we can start to tease apart, uh, let's say, hey, Russell Wilson, uh, he gets sacked a lot. Is that because his offensive line is bad or is that because uh, he's holding on to the ball too long? We can measure those things and answer those questions. So my question, do, do all the teams have this data and are all the teams doing the kinds of analyses you guys are? Or if not, um, you, if you guys yeah, must if, be getting... If, if ESPN was a team, uh, where would you place yourself in kind of the power rankings of the analytics that are going on? Like a distant number one, like way beyond any team. Wow. So do the teams have the next-gen data as well? They do, but they've only had it for a year. We've had it for... Over two years, I think right. two and a half years. So the teams were originally given only their own team's right. data. That's what I remember, and yep. So it was like shadow boxing. So you could look at a plot of, of a play, but you're only seeing 11 players. Uh, now the teams have 
all 22 players for every game, just like ESPN did. So we are uh, well, well ahead of the um, of the teams just because of that. Uh, on top of that, we've we've just we have you know full time staff that this is all we do, um, and the teams I think are. Uh, just hiring up right now. So they're staffing up to get um, people in place to start doing things like this. Now, they also con- they'll, they'll, there are vendors that will take the data from the teams, perform analysis kind of stuff that I might be doing, and then um, give it back to the teams. So the teams are doing things internally, but they're also using vendors to provide analysis. So now that I've asked you already about let's kind of the first couple things you did, and I don't want to get yet to the current future stuff, let's as you reflect back on the let's call it the insights for football that you've been able to glean from the next gen data, which you don't think kind of let's call it traditional stats would have been able to do. Could you give our listeners here in Wharton Moneyball maybe a few highlights of things that you have found over the last year or two that you'd be like, wow, we never would have found that. The fans were interested in it. This is valuable for teams, and I don't get why every team's not doing this yeah i would say the the pass blocking and pass rushing stuff is is very insightful um so we can uh look at uh you know what you know basically where teams something these are things probably you know football people you know very skilled experts um like you had uh you know uh joe banner on uh, a couple weeks ago last week as a matter of fact yeah okay like you could you could look at um you know, he can watch a game and be able to tell these things, but if you're not a football expert, um, our, our metrics now can um, kind of turn you into one. Like, who's a good pass blocker? Yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't watch a game and tell you who, who's very good. Oh, no, I consider um, myself a very avid fan, but, you know, blocking and, and line play just in general is, is, is still a mystery to me. But yeah, but now not only can we – and then we can quantify it. We can actually put a number on it. And then we can take another step where we're doing this at scale and scope that and speed that's just impossible for, you know, there, there's companies out there that do kind of uh, game charting and scouting and great player grading. And they'll, you know, it'll take them all week to, to process the 16 games from the previous uh, weekend. We, we'll, we're doing this instantly in near real time. We're here on Wharton Moneyball. This is Eric Bradlow, Professor of Marketing and Statistics, and I'm here with Professor of Statistics Shane Jensen. Uh, we're talking to Brian Burke, a Senior Analytics Specialist at ESPN, uh, a writer at ESPN.com and longtime friend of the show. If you have a question for any of us, uh, please call us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. Well, gi- given, given that you're able to kind of produce these very advanced kind of measures and metrics that, you know, the casual fan, you know, wouldn't be able to kind of eyeball or calculate themselves. How are you guys focused on the kind of the dissemination or communication aspect of it? Like, what what do you sort of foresee as kind of like, how are you going to basically present this to the casual fan? Yeah, for now, it's a lot of these things are in our kind of internal dashboard at ESPN that our researchers, um, on-air talent, they can access these things. So if they want, let's say, um, you know, on Get Up, uh, which is one of our shows, I guess, on right now, <laughs> uh, the, uh, the, the, the every show will have a researcher. So when they say, hey, we want to talk about um, uh, Carson Wentz is getting sacked all the time, well, we can provide you know, supporting information, 
to analyze why is he getting sacked? Um, you know, is it is he playing great pass rushing teams? Is it his own pass protection? How long is he holding on to the ball? Those sorts of things. So they could they could use those internal to, to provide that. Um, now, maybe one day ESPN.com will have a you'll have a landing page you can go to you know, every fan and see these kinds of statistics. Um, but that's actually pretty difficult to do. It, it's um, you'd be surprised. Big enterprise website like that. We can't just kind of create these things on the fly like I could in my old website. So um, could you... for, yeah. So for also articles. Uh, so we'll provide articles. We might give you the top ten blockers or um, uh, at each position, top ten pass rushers at each position, things like that. So could you tell us about your recent work on, if you'd like, uh, play detection in real time? Uh, I know you're doing some machine learning work. I know how I would approach the problem, which would be I would treat it as a supervised learning problem. I would have a bunch of experts kind of uh, measure a bunch of plays and say, oh, this is a this play, this is a that play. And then I would take the motion data from those, and then I would build a machine to kind of train it and learn these people are in this type of motion on this type of play? Is that similar at all to what you're doing? Or forget what I would do. What have you guys actually done? Yeah, no, that, that's correct. Uh, it's, it's really a combination of uh, supervised and unsupervised. Um, so what we've, what we've done this year, my main project for almost the past year has been building a pass coverage classifier. So uh, for those unfamiliar in football, one of the very – core most important things like a, a quarterback will will consider uh during a pass play is what is the pass coverage is it man-to-man is it zone is it uh, a cover two zone is it a man one which would be one high safety in addition to the man-to-man defenders things like that so what we wanted to do that's a really important part of football um one of the great stories of the super bowl last year was that the the patriots changed up how they play pass coverage and did a lot of what's called cover four, which is something they, they didn't do very much of during the season. They're very much a man-to-man team. The Rams' offense were man-to-man killers. Their offense was engineered to beat man-to-man coverage. And so the Patriots, even though they were a man-to-man defense team, they switched it up and went cover four, and that's what frustrated the Rams. That's why they couldn't score points. That's why the, the Patriots won the Super Bowl. So we wanted to be able to tell a story like that at ESPN, do that kind of analysis. So we wanted to um, create this, this uh, classifier. So what we did, we did have half a season of pass plays with labeled data. So a cover two or man two or Tampa two, something like that. Yeah, so just for our listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, um, this is the supervised part that I was mentioning. So what Brian is talking about is um, you have some set of plays where we kind of quote-unquote know the truth. Just to make sure our listeners know why this is valuable, because then you have a gold standard or benchmark to which your statistical model can then try to predict. Yeah, yeah. So the the first step is recognizing whether this is a man or a zone. And in order to do that, the best method I found was uh, tracing or making a, a graphical image of the play uh, with the player trajectories being drawn. Um, and it's just a tiny 64 by 64 bit image. I mean, it's like a postage stamp kind of thing. And it's a two channel image, like one channel is a, is a color like red, green, blue. That's how digital images are, are made. And one channel is the offense, one channel is the defense. And uh, I put that through, I built a um, uh, neural network, convolutional neural network, which is you know, 
built to uh, these networks are built to kind of understand images and you know that's how Google knows if it's you in a picture or a dog in a picture things like that and so that can tell us man's zone pretty well once I know that I use um, what's called uh, integer programming or um, integer optimization to figure out whether it's a, a cover two or cover three or cover four, if it's a zone and so on. And the way that works is I've built a library of um, where each player should be on the field, uh, assuming that it's a cover two or assuming it's each type of coverage. And then I measure the distance. I have to assign each player to those spots on the field. And in order to do that, um, you know, in a way that makes sense, it's an assignment problem. Yep. That's, what, that's how we talk about in operations research. And so the integer optimization assigns each player that, that makes the most sense. And so now we can know not only this player was part of this coverage, but what was his role in this coverage? Was he the flat defender? Was he the hook defender? Was he the free safety? And so on. Um, and then there's going to be an error, right? Like, hey, if this was cover three, this player should be here, but he's not quite there. He's not quite here. And so we add all that error up, and whichever one, whichever uh, coverage has the least amount of error is the thing we, we call it. That's, so we'll say, if this were a cover two, these players would be here. They're not quite there. Well, let's add up all the error, uh, and then we have a number. And then hey, if this were cover three, these players should be here. Uh, they're not there. We add up that error. Whichever one has the least error gets gets the label. So it turns out it works really, really well. And and uh, just as a kind of a, a little bit of a technical clarification, how much of the signal in that is where they ha line up to start the play versus as the play progresses? Can you kind of get a – are you basically estimating the coverage or, or classifying the coverage based on where they line up or, or – does the actual extent of where they move on the play inform that as well? The Where they are when they line up is difficult because teams will disguise on purpose. Right. So they will that was kind of what I was thinking about, yeah. They do this on purpose, so that's another thing we can do. We can measure that as well. We can measure how well teams are disguising or even attempting to disguise their coverages. Um, and so the, 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 the actual play call, when we when – we, call something a cover two, I'm looking at about two seconds into the play. That's about when the structure, these zone structures are actually formed. So after that, it starts to break down um, and gets a little more chaotic. So the, these zones have good coherent structure about two seconds into the play. So I'm looking at a snapshot there. I'm also looking at the snap and making a, um, d doing some more things. There's another integer program that will measure hey, how, how how much does this look like man-to-man? -man? We're looking at the number of defenders uh, within three yards of the line of scrimmage. So a lot of you know heavy blitz man-to-man uh, -man will um, uh, will have kind of formations where the defense is kind of all rushing the line to start the play. But then they 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 trick the quarterback. So they'll rotate from like a cover two look to a, a cover three look where. Uh, Cover two means there's two safeties, two high safeties deep in the field, in the coverage. Cover three, there, there's basically one deep safety, and the cornerbacks will, will drop back deep as well. And what they'll do is at the snap, they'll, they'll show one, and then right as the snap occurs, they'll kind of rotate their safeties and, and change it at the last second. 
And so it's really interesting. It's a great project, not only because the machine learning was a lot of fun, but I learned a tremendous amount of X and O football. Um, and so uh, if, you, if you really want to learn football at X and O level, pass coverage is a, is a great place to start. So let's maybe transition to what we've observed this season. We're kind of two weeks into the season. Um, from an analytics perspective, what are you guys looking at that maybe the, I'll just call it the win-loss record, wouldn't perceive? Like, you know, everybody's looking right now at New England saying, you know, is this another... 16 and 0 season with a you know possibly undefeated run through the playoffs. I mean, what are you seeing analytically as you're looking at the teams right now that maybe the casual fan wouldn't just see in the win loss record or the points for points against etc. Yeah, we have uh, a metric called SPI that's um, similar to the the Massey Peabody ratings. I know that you know Kate Kate discusses often. Yep. Um, and so we've got, uh, I think. We don't have the Patriots kind of stomping through the the season sixteen and zero, um, but the way these quarterbacks are falling out, uh, um, they're dropping like flies. It's only week two. Uh, who knows if, if Brady stays healthy? You know that um, uh, I don't know how much uh, competition they'll have. I mean, like Ben Roethlisberger. You know that would have been a good opportunity for the you know Patriots to have a tough tough opponent there, but. You know, Pittsburgh isn't what they were last year now. So um, those are the things we're looking at. We're looking at how the quarterback um, carnage is going to affect the season. Um, it's, it's pretty difficult. The, the quarterback is the one position that really moves the needle uh, on, on game predictions. Um, so th- those are the kinds of things we're looking at. Are you buying or selling the Ravens right now? Are you buying or selling Lamar Jackson? I mean, let's look at who they've played. They've played, yeah. I think it's the Dolphins and the Cardinals. And, and by the way, it's not like they routed the Cardinals. That that was a highly competitive game going into the fourth quarter, and even in the fourth quarter, um, are you, uh, that's just a team I'm thinking about because Lamar Jackson's putting up very strong numbers right now. H- how are you guys analytically looking at Lamar Jackson? Uh, we've got the we've got him very strong. So we have the Ravens as our, our third best team. I personally, I would. Um, I would take the under there, but uh, I'm a pessimistic Ravens fan. I grew up in Baltimore, ah. but uh, but yeah, we have them very strong. It is, you know, our system fully accounts for opponents. Um, but uh, I would say that the that, that Cardinal game probably didn't need to be as competitive. Uh, the um, I look at secondaries. <laughs> I was looking at the game uh, on the in the tracking data, and the Ravens were doing some pretty sloppy work in the secondary but giving it giving up some really big plays but uh we've got we've got the ravens um going pretty far about 90 percent chance to make the playoffs 80 percent to win that division well how do you see this week's game obviously you know this is a pretty good test this week against this team that plays in kansas city and uh, of course, they've got a quarterback that's analytically looking pretty good, Patrick now. Mahomes. So, how do you guys evaluate what Mahomes has done, which has just been incredible? And how do you guys see the relative strength of the Raven versus the uh, Chiefs? We have uh, we have the, the Chiefs favored by about eight points. I think I think Vegas might have them six and a half. Might yeah, a little bit less, six or something like that. Yeah, so we're we're a little higher on the on the Chiefs. Um, the, uh, the, they look like the main contender, obviously, for, for the Patriots. So um, repeat of last year's AFC Championship game, would, would you know, I wouldn't bet against that. Um, they're on the road. 
Uh, Lamar Jackson did play against, had a pretty good game. The Ravens played the Chiefs very hard last year, so um, hopefully it's entertaining. But we do have the Chiefs with a pretty um, pretty solid uh, advantage there. So maybe just in the last few minutes that we have, um, if we were, I always love to ask this question of anyone doing work on the, I'll call it pioneering work in analytics. If we're sitting here a year from now, which we'll hope to have you back on many times before then, but if we're sitting here a year from now, what have you been working on? What will you be working on uh, during the season that you think will have, you know, whether it's move the needle in a for the listener or move the needle within ESPN? Uh, one real easy thing might be um, I was having a conversation with Dan Orlovsky, he's one of our on-air analysts, and he just made this offhand comment about DeAndre Hopkins, who's a receiver for the Texans. And he just said, hey, if he wins off the line, I'm throwing to him no matter what. Soft-hand comment. And I, I was walking back to – our offices, and I said, and I was like, that's really easy to measure, like winning off the line with with this tracking data. So that's something we started doing. We're tracking receivers, how often they get pressed coverage, and then how often, what does their like relative velocity look like compared to their defender? And so we can now measure like how how well players are kind of winning off the line when they get pressed or when they're not pre- in press coverage. That's really low hanging fruit, something easy we can do. Can't you also measure what fraction of the balls that they catch? You know, they say this person catches a lot of fifty fifty balls. Well, you guys can actually measure that. Like how many times was, let's call it the proximity of the receiver and the cornerback or safety within a certain amount? What fraction does he catch? Yeah. Where was the ball actually placed? Maybe. I don't know if you can know where the ball actually went, but um, couldn't it also be looked at in that way? Uh, the, the ball is tracked, but it, it's very noisy. So we can't, it's not good enough to do things like that. But uh, I did build this system called Deep QB, which I turned into a paper for Sloan last year, which kind of it looks at the entire play, how, how it unfolds, and then asks what would the quarterback do? Who would the quarterback throw to? What is the probability of completion, probability of interception, and so on? And it will it'll tell you all those things. But then the interesting thing is in the differences, right? Like let's say Julio Jones on average you know, is like a 60% you know, catch probability, but he actually catches 80% of the balls thrown his way. So the the interesting thing is in the is in the delta and the differences. So you know, Brashad Perryman, as a long-suffering Ravens fan, you know, he might have a 60% average, you know, projected catch probability. He's only catching 40%. You know, so you know, we can we can measure begin to measure those things. So let me maybe just one last question here. What stops? You know, if we're talking five years from now, why isn't it? GM Brian Burke. Like, why wouldn't a team? No, I'm being serious. Why wouldn't a team just hire you to, you know, build mathematical models and say this player's 20 percent above probabilities? I'm sure you could build a prediction system from the college game up to the pros to help with the draft. And you know, I'm not trying to put you on. I'm not saying you don't love your job at ESPN, but I'm saying, are do you think we'll within the next few years be at a place where someone who's really building rigorous mathematical models? will be given the opportunity to fully run a team. Uh, well, it's, I, I don't work for, it's not because teams aren't trying to hire me. Um, <laughs> I really do. Uh, my role at ESPN is, is a tremendous amount of fun. I really love it. But the uh, teams are hiring folks like me. They are, um, th- there are really smart folks who are kind of coming up through the analytics track Maybe they're kind of soft analytics. They're not hardcore machine learning specialists like I am, but maybe they are like appliers 
and they're applying, they, they understand the analytics and they apply the analytics, and they're coming up through the ranks and they're gradually getting into positions, personnel director. Um, there's analytics director for the Jaguars, is now an assistant GM for the Twins. Uh, so they're crossing back and forth between sports as well. So um, there's a uh, name escaping at the moment, but um, uh, Podesta, D. Podesta, right? Yeah, and, Paul D. Paul uh, D. Podesta. Yeah, he's now in in Cleveland. So um, there's, you know, I think there's it's pr- slow progress. Well, well, put it this way: when this happens, I'm going to say I claimed it here first on Wharton Moneyball. So Brian, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us this morning. We've been talking to Brian Burke. Uh, one of the pioneers in modern football analytics, currently senior analytics specialist at ESPN, a writer at ESPN.com. So, Brian, thank you for joining us this morning on Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. So this has been the first three quarters of Wharton Moneyball, but, of course, the game has four quarters. So stay with us and join us after the break. This is Eric Bradlow, professor of marketing and statistics, here with my co-host this morning, Shane Jensen, some combination of us, Adi Weiner and Cade Matthew, every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 a.m. live Eastern, uh, here on Wharton Moneyball. And thanks to Martin Nuaga. I think that was a trick question. Should I stay or should I go? I should stay. I this was a two-hour yeah, show. Don't overthink it. Yeah, don't, it's don't overthink it. it but Stick thank around. you, thank you to Martin for uh, bringing us back to "Should I Stay or Should I Go." Certainly one of the great songs of the. Uh, I guess that would be in the seventies. Yeah. If I know it, it's got to be a song of the seventies. So there were a couple other things, uh, Shane. Before we get to our Moneyball matchups that caught my eye in sports this week, um, one maybe an homage to our co-host Cade Massey, who's not here. This is actually a week in college football where there's actually some big games that could actually start to determine maybe who gets to the playoffs. So let me say a few of the games and see your thoughts. The first big game of the week is two top 10 teams, uh, Notre Dame and Georgia. So the first question I had to you is, how do you think this game even got scheduled? Like, why would Georgia do this? I understand why Notre Dame, who's essentially an independent, would do this. Like, they've got to try to schedule good teams. But why would Georgia do this to themselves? Why well, not just no. play a, pan, a bunch of pancakes, a, uh, no. try to flatten Alabama in the you know SEC championship game? What the hell are they doing playing Notre well, Dame? Right, uh, well, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I can't imagine what the four-dimensional chess strategy of trying to kind of like get in that playoff involves, but Georgia probably does have at least realistic views about like, oh, I think Georgia would like to have a path to that playoff that doesn't involve just having to beat Alabama, though that Uh. is, of of course, the most direct path to that playoff. And so what is that So you're saying they beat Notre Dame, they possibly lose to Alabama, but— they beat Notre Dame. They're, yeah, one, no, they're I, the best I, of the one-loss teams. I, th- I think the really good teams are incentivized to kind of pump up, to have their schedule be as difficult as possible and succeed. You know, I, I mean, if you're if you're planning out, and these things are probably planned out seasons well, in advance, right? Probably five years um, in advance. This game, was you know, scheduled. you're you're planning out sort of like you know you want to put. It's almost like a coach putting his team in the best position to win. Well, the best position is against quality competition. I mean, you know, Georgia could, yeah, pancake. I don't know, you know, Villanova. I'm, I'm just really making up, you know, teams at this point. But that would give them nothing. There would be no value to that, win or lose. In fact, the, the sort of like the best, you know, the worst case is they actually kind of play a bad game against a bad team. So how do you see this game going? I mean, both of them are in the top ten, and whether it's the FPI, which Brian Burke just talked yeah. about, or Massey Peabody, there might be a four to five point differential in terms of strength parameter. But of course, George is at home, so there's some home field there. Um, do you put any stock in, let's just say base rates, 
really strong SEC team against Notre Dame. Notre Dame seems to flame out recently in the big, big games well, that, when it matters I mean, the I mean most. Notre Dame, to me, it's just, you know, I can't get past the kind of very variance, you know. They're, they're such an uncertain team. You know, they're, I mean, certainly over the last few seasons, they've been high variance in their performance. And I, I'm going to kind of, you know, when when I pick a game like that, I'm going to just kind of invest in the more certain kind of performance and, 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 and essentially reliability of performance that Georgia represents. By the way, to show you how big the statistical difference is between, let's say, the top three or four teams and even the other top ten teams, because I think they're number three and number nine right yeah. now in the rankings, without looking at my screen here, what would you guess is the point spread in this game? Remember, Georgia's at home. What would you guess? Forget that it's Georgia and Notre Dame. The three-team in the nation is playing the number, I think it's nine-team right now. The three's playing the nine. What's the point spread? Um, I'm going to guess that it's, uh, including the home field advantage, I'm going to guess it's like an eight-point spread. Right. It's 14 points. Wow. Yeah, so, so that, that is even high. I mean, you, the fact that you were making a big deal out of it means I should, you know, says to me that I should have been, like, bigger but yeah that is that is amazing just how you know that that left tail of of, of or right tail i guess of of the really top teams are just so much better than even the ninth place team well that's why i got you know when you know when our first show up when we had our college football show a couple weeks ago and Cade was like you know er, how is everyone excited about the season and i said and i i didn't mean i only meant it facetiously i'm not that excited about this season not because i'm not interested in individual games but, like, I see three or four teams, Clemson, mm-hmm. Alabama, Georgia, who I said again I thought should have beaten Alabama yeah. last year. They would, they, they were inches away from beating Alabama last year. I see those three teams as just being measured. Maybe you want to put LSU up there. But, I mean, you put – and, of course, three of those teams are in the SEC, so that doesn't get me excited. But I see those teams – I mean, when three is playing nine and the spread's 14 – it's hard to get. I'm not saying spreads can't be wrong, but it doesn't get me that excited. No, and I, I mean, I mean, it is sort of that that kind of talent dispersion to these like three or four really top teams. I I agree. Like you know, I, I could imagine a situation where there was greater parity being even more exciting to a greater proportion of people. I still am very excited about the dynamics of it because you have yeah i mean i mean the kind of i guess the flip side or the counter argument is it's exciting and almost kind of like again this sort of like the fact that there's this only this four team playoff that the three best teams in the nation all kind of are unlikely at least to all go to that playoff it it creates a real kind of at least competition among those three. And you know I'm hoping, as always, for yeah. chaos, where, yeah. like, you know, there's total mayhem where there's, like, seven or eight deserving teams, and they end up having to choose between the third SEC team and the Big Ten champion. And I, I've learned, I mean, maybe the numbers are quite a little bit different this season versus up, but I've learned that, you know, I, I often get this kind of feeling of inevitability in college football, and, and I'm always surprised. Always Every wrong. season something weird happens, and a team comes out of nowhere uh, to at least challenge for the playoff, or one of these teams could, you know, lose two games, and then, you know, they're basically sunk. Yeah, I mean, this is probably another season where they leave out the— you know, the most, well, two years ago, they were the uh, co-national champion, UCF. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. another year where I've been banging this drum for a long time. For a while. But they're undefeated again. They beat Stanford. They routed Stanford. This yeah. is another year where, again, I just, if you're listening to me at the College Playoff Football Committee here, I know you are because everybody listens to Wharton Moneyball. Yeah, that that's has right. good taste. Listen, please. Make it eight teams in this playoff. Oh, I don't want more so than eight. I don't eight. want more than eight. Yeah. Just give me eight so that UCF I think is that, in the yeah. game. Look, 
they can get blown up. But by the yeah. way, they haven't been blown out. Let's let's that, let's look. see the Boise States, the UCFs. Let's get them in there and let's see what happens. Ne- Just never, play ne- the game ne- on the field. Never mind that it's going to allow us to better express the like kind of regional sort of like you, it's going to allow us like all the regions of the United States to kind of you know, speak in this in the playoff. Also, I mean, just look at ha- at baseball yes. and how much more exciting, you know, the kind of these these races have been once we've introduced this concept of a wild yeah, card. Yeah, we wouldn't be talking about oh. Tampa Bay, Oakland, and Cleveland. We'd be asleep be right now over. if it was only we division be, We winners. wouldn't even be talking. Yeah. The, Yankee, the division's yeah. been over for the Yankees since July. Yeah. We wouldn't even be talking about it the It is AL. so much more, like, let's keep more teams in contention. It's more exciting for everybody. And... You know, I mean, yes, if it means that, like, you know, you're leaving a little bit more to chance at the end of the playoffs, uh, that's but fine. But actually, I, I think, think it's great. Well, let's talk about just briefly a topic that you and I have talked a lot about on the air, which is what I'll call playoff design. I think you're happy with the fact, you and I are both happy, by definition, because it's a one-game playoff in baseball, yeah. you have a 50% less chance yeah. if you're not a division winner. So that's a huge mm-hmm. penalty. We've talked about this in football. Oh, yeah. If you're not one or two, you play an extra game— and you don't have home field. Yeah, no, when I mean, you, I so can imagine... You have no uh, problem with that, I can right? imagine this eight-team playoff, you would want to kind of incentivize conference champions. I mean, you could start thinking about, like, a buy system whereby, like, you really incentivize still conference championships or whatever. There's a way of expanding the playoffs in a way that kind of gives teams more, you know, obviously a, a greater chance of being in it, but doesn't necessarily affect the kind of dramatically the the path of the kind of big four teams or yeah, whatever well, put of your that thumb, season. Look, put your thumb on the scale. Yeah. Let those big four teams be the home team. Even play it at a, you could play it at a bowl site or yeah. you could make it a, a home game for them. But, yeah. you know, let's give these teams a chance. Well, here's another big game happening this week. I don't think I have to tell you why this game is big. Michigan and Wisconsin. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that is going to be a very big game. And, I mean, part of it is, of course – just kind of the regional rivalry of it all. Those those teams do have a really great rivalry. But also it is, again, looking ahead, I mean, a, a loss for either of these two teams dramatically affects their playoff chances. Well, look, the reality is there are four legitimate teams, I would think, in the Big Ten that right now we're sitting here you could make an argument for. Michigan, obviously. Yeah. Wisconsin, you would agree. Mm-hmm. You can't leave out Penn State and Ohio State. I mean, yeah. so, I mean... It's not like the Big Ten right now isn't interesting. I mean, they're four. Oh, te- no, I know that, people say right. that they're not as good as the SEC. Maybe they're not. But one of those four teams almost certainly should be able to make it into the playoffs. Unless, well, well, again, I mean, the, unless because, they beat each other you know, up. The, exactly, and that's the sort of thing that sort of ha- that happens, right? I mean, it, it, it is that in a in a kind of a strong conference like that, you have you, you could end up that they all kind of come out of it equally beat up standings wise and none of them actually kind of you know have enough to get over that georgia hump or whatever but you believe this is what i believe if one of those four power teams in the big 10 has one loss or clearly less certainly if we're undefeated they're going for sure would you take the big 10 champion with one loss over the third SEC team with one loss. And this is why it's such an interesting, fascinating calculation that's more human than it is machine, is it depends on the victories, and it depends on, it depends on how they won. It depends on who they that one loss was to. It depends on, let's say, Georgia's that third SEC team, who they lost to, if they lost any. If they're on, you know, if uh, it, it's, it's going to all kind of come down to these, like, sort of subjective decisions. I know they try and codify it as much as possible, but, you know, this is why it's fast. You know, 
and this is why it's I think it's so great that Massey Peabody don't just model the actual game outcomes. They model the decisions of the committee right, because that's a great. whole another level. And I, I you know, it's fascinating in a human psychology sense. You and I are both on the same page. I'd like to maybe make it a little bit easier on the committee, expand to eight teams. There probably still are going to be arbitrary decisions made at that eighth or ninth slot, but it's just, you know, I, I think it's going to be less, you know, essentially controversial season to season. By the way, it's just great that there are some in, that there are NS, yeah. there are college games that actually are mattering. That and matter I mean, again, we, you know, we we are talking about progress here. You know, I remember when there wasn't a playoff at all, and we'd have this controversy over who just gets named the number one team in the nation. Uh, where four is better than zero. I'm, yeah. I'm certainly that, but eight would be a lot better. Well, it's that time, Shane, where we got to talk about the real football, the NFL. Omaha! Omaha! Wants to go to the end zone. He does. Moneyball matchups. So I'm sure like many listeners here on Wharton Moneyball, a lot of people say their week starts on Sunday. For me... The minute I hear the Moneyball matchup music and, and play in, that's when the NFL starts for me. So I get to absorb and uh, I get to enjoy the NFL between Wednesday at about 9.45 a.m. Eastern all the way through to the Monday night game. Because the minute I hear that, I'm thinking, it's NFL time. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like NFL these days for me is almost a 24-hour, seven days a week obsession. But yes, no, I... I uh, it's it's really kind of when we get to look over this slate of games as 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 the um, intelligent analysts we are on Wednesday morning that I really kind of start getting hyped for the weekend. There we are. All right. Well, we've got a long list of games in front of us. It's just two of us today. Yeah. What games have caught your eye and why? Well, I mean, we it's kind of a cheat because we already kind of highlighted during our conversation with Brian, but uh, the, that Ravens-Chiefs game has got to be the kind of marquee matchup of the week, right? I think we've got two teams that I think most people would place, you know, place in the top three in the AFC going against each other. And it's also a, a, a great game in the sense that both these teams are coming in. They're both 2-0, and but against not necessarily the most you know impressive competition so this is probably the first real test for both these teams as well i mean certainly for the ravens having played the cardinals and dolphins it's unclear what we've learned from those experiences um and the chiefs i think they went up against the raiders and i'm trying to remember who else they played previously but i i think this is probably going to be the first test of the chiefs as well so let me ask you a question about i love this game too let me ask you about what i'll call asymmetry here who are we going to learn more about? Like, for example, let's imagine the Ravens beat the Chiefs in this game. I don't think you're going to leave this game saying, oh, my God, the Chiefs are out of it. They're no good. But you're likely to say, wow, the mm -hmm. Ravens are much better than yeah. I thought. So from your Bayesian updating point of view, do you agree there's more information going to be learned about the Ravens in this game than the Chiefs? Yes. No, and I, I, I think it specifically comes down to the quarterback. I, I mean, most almost all of our uncertainty about the Ravens is – you know, kind of us trying to slowly update what Lamar Jackson really is all about. If, if this is a guy who really can run and throw with the best of them, that is scary uh, for everybody else. I mean, we kind of know, you know, I have no uncertainty about the Ravens defense. They're always going to be quite good. I mean, that's just kind of an organizational thing that they have, um, that they're going to be able to kind of keep up with the Rams on both sides of the ball there. We're going to find out. So any other games catch your eye? Well, um, the Saints against the Seahawks, I think, will be interesting because, again, talking about uncertainty, right. you know, one of the things the Saints are going to have to deal with is, is is the loss of Drew Brees, and that's obviously going to really affect their chances over the next five, six games or however long he's out. 
At the same time, they do have the most expensive backup in football, probably one of the best backups Teddy in football. Absolutely. Um, and I'm kind of I, I'm kind of excited. I'm, I'm you know I, I was kind of bummed about what happened to Teddy Bridgewater. So I would love for him to kind of have sort of a restart to his career in this kind of setting. And certainly he has the weapons around him to do that. So that's kind of a fascinating game for me. Well, obviously I have to spend at least just a minute or two talking about my game of the week, the game that I will be at this week, the Giants at the Buccaneers. Now let me say a couple things uh, since we've been on the air last week. Yeah. Nice win for Tampa Bay at Carolina. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, that's a real win. Yeah. That's a real win. Divisional, real win. divisional wins always count. On the road. Yep. Real win. And, of course, the big news is that, uh, thanks to Zach Drapkin for pointing this out, but it's not like I didn't get 10 text messages like, oh, did you know that the Giants are starting Daniel Jones against the Buccaneers? Yeah. So I, I was always thinking about this from an analytics perspective. Who would you rather, if you're the Buccaneers fan like I am, mm -hmm. who would you rather have starting against you? Let's say on the one hand, like Eli Manning is kind of an average quarterback now. Matter of fact, his whole career, except for the playoffs, he's average. Yeah. He's, matter of fact, his career record, by the way, I don't know if you saw it, 116 wins, 116 oh, yeah. losses. No, so Eli Manning is the literal definition of mediocre Correct. as a regular season quarterback. Mediocre. Yeah. I mean, I understand he's thrown for 60,000 yards, but yeah, he's played 20, well, 18 yeah, exactly. seasons. He's durable. He, durable. He's both durable and mediocre. But he's mediocre. Yeah. Or, so you have a mediocre quarterback with low variance, mm -hmm. or you have a guy that... Could do anything. Oh, we don't know. Yeah. He could, could end up throwing for 400 yards. We have no idea. So if you were a Buccaneers fan, would you have rather played against Eli? Or the other argument is, you know, uh, Todd Bowles, who's the defensive yeah. coordinator for the Bucs, he'll dial up something against a rookie quarterback. Which one would you rather face, Manning or Jones? I think, I mean, if I'm Todd Bowles, I'd rather face Eli, I think, just because I can actually game plan for that in a little bit more of a certain way, right? I mean, I think we, you know, what... Eli can have good and bad games, but you kind of know the kind of game that you're going to get from Eli Manning. Whereas I agree, Daniel Jones, the uncertainty is very high, and you could get something, you know, I mean, they could come out and there's just not a lot of tape, I think, or nearly as much kind of body of work that you can point to as far as coming up with game plans to oppose Daniel Jones. So, I, you know, if I'm a Bucks fan or if I'm a Bucks coach, I probably would have preferred that they waited a couple more games before taking me Manning out. Yeah, I like the Buccaneers in that game, but I— I Who don't knows? know. Daniel right? Jones no, I mean, has looked good in the preseason. That's another one way it's going to be an exciting game. Yeah, so we've got and any other ones in the last kind of 30 seconds we have. Here's maybe an, actually an interesting game. We'll see, you know, Texans at Chargers. Yeah. We've got two teams at 1-1, one and one, and one yeah. of those teams is going to be 1-2 and two after this week. And, and, and I mean, if you kind of thought, you know, I mean, most of us in our sort of like rankings right now kind of have New England and, and the Chiefs up on, on, on top of the AFC and probably Baltimore is making the strongest argument for number three. But these two teams, the Chargers and teams. Texans, are probably going to be there at the end and could actually, you know, with, with the appropriate kind of mixture of coaching and players could actually push through. So, yeah, I mean, I think it is a fascinating early test for both those teams. Well, this has been two hours of Wharton Moneyball. I want to thank our producer, Matt Datz. I'd like to thank our associate producer and soundboard engineer, Martin Nuaga, this week. I'd like to thank my co-host, Shane Jensen, some combination of myself, Shane Jensen, Adi Weiner, and Cade Massey. We're here every week on Wharton Moneyball, Wednesday, 8 to 10 a.m. live. Between now and next week, enjoy your sports and never forget... Go Buccaneers, go NFL. We'll speak to you next week on Wharton Moneyball. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.